Canby New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. Well, it's great to be with you this morning. And uh, if you were here last weekend, uh, you're aware that we're in this uh, second part of our series called The Story, where we're talking about God's story as recorded in the Bible. But now we've moved into part two, which is the rest of the story, which is Christ in you. See, God's still telling the story through the book of Acts. That was the story, how it began of the early church, and that story is still being told today through people just like you and me. I uh, had to chuckle a little bit. Um, I mentioned that I was going to give you a quiz this morning, and there was this stunned silence. It was, uh, you know how that is when you're in junior high and the teacher says, you're going to have a test, and there's this kind of, Yeah, there's this moment of panic. I saw that on your faces. Okay, this won't be graded, so you're good to go. But before I get to the quiz, three-question quiz, uh, I want to talk about the promise of God part two. Last weekend, what I did is I talked about the promise of God, which is the gift or the baptism with the Holy Spirit that was poured out beginning on the book of Acts. We see that the Holy Spirit fell on the disciples Uh, that were gathered there, and uh, they began to demonstrate gifts of power through the rest of the book of Acts. And so we talked about how important the baptism or the fullness of the Holy Spirit is in our Christian life and our relationship with Jesus. I want to talk about part two. And before I do, I just want us to remember something that Jesus said in John 15, 5. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. What he's telling us is that we can only be effective in our Christian life and our Christian walk is if we're relying upon the power and the strength of God's Holy Spirit to live this new life that he's given us. And so we really need to understand how God wants to work through our lives today. And it just isn't something that happened in the Old Testament or in the New Testament times. God is still working today. So here's the first quiz question. If you want to take out pen and pencil, write down your answers. It'll be easy. You either answer yes or no. Pretty simple. The questions do get harder as we go along. Question number one. Do you believe that God still does miracles today? Oh my goodness. Such a vocal response. Don't let somebody cheat and take your answer. Now this is secret, super secret. So just put a little Y down on there in your sermon notes. Don't let anybody peek at your answers now. You know how important that is. Question number two, do you believe that God could use you to do something miraculous or supernatural? Oh, you're still cheating. Wow. You know, this is the only service where people were verbal in their responses. You guys are really wide awake and with it, aren't you? You're full of fire. Now I'm real curious to see what you do with the third one. Are you willing, available, and do you desire for God to use you to heal the sick, speak in tongues, prophesy, cast out demons, or even raise the dead? Oh, you're just trying to impress me. (laughs) Either that or you're really faith-filled and we could just all go home right now. No, I'm not going to let that happen. Sorry. Bunch of Pentecostals here this morning. Well, we better pray after that. I mean, you all passed with flying colors, so let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I I thank you so much that you're still alive and well and doing miracles today that you want to use each of us to demonstrate your power and your glory that the name of Jesus would be lifted up, that people would be saved, and that, God, our lives would be fruitful. So, Lord, we just pray as we open your word now that your Holy Spirit would challenge us, And inspire us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned last week, it's really an interesting thing when we look at the life of Jesus and how, you know, things worked out for him. I know that when he was born, uh, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, we all know Christmas time 
that we would call his name Emmanuel, God with us. We understand that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, God incarnate. And what's so surprising, though, is that for the first 30 years of his life, we have no record of him ever doing a miracle, never healing anybody, or ever preaching a sermon. He was just living life like we do, cutting down trees, making furniture, caring for his mother, his brothers and sisters, until he was baptized in water at the Jordan River. Even though he didn't need to be baptized, he had no sin, never sinned, he said to John, it's important that we do this to fulfill all righteousness. I'm setting an example, John. And so, baptize me. And he did. And when he came out of the water, we remember from last weekend that God's Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus and remained on him. And God the Father spoke audibly from heaven and saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Immediately after that happened, it says, the Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil 40 days and 40 nights, fasting the entire time. He resisted every temptation. And then the Bible says that after that temptation was ended, he returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And it's interesting where he went first. He went back to his hometown of Nazareth. Now I'm going to ask you to try to imagine the synagogue. Imagine a gathering place where all of the neighbors would meet every Sabbath relatives, and Jesus was there. He walked in, and, and it was the custom of the day that if you wanted to read some of the Scripture, you could be invited to do that. And so Jesus stood up, and the attendant gave him the scroll of Isaiah. Everybody knew who he was. And the Bible says that he found the place, the place in Isaiah, the prophetically announced his arrival. And he read this in John, and we see it in, in, excuse me, in Luke 4, 14 through 21, we see how Jesus announced his ministry to friends, families, and neighbors, family and neighbors. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I can imagine you could hear a pin drop in that, in that synagogue that day. Because they're looking at this person that they've known since he was a child. And now he's claiming to be the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him. His ministry and his intentions were just publicly announced. He said, I'm here to heal brokenhearted people. People that are just beat up by life disappointed, disillusioned, people that are captives of sin and of the devil, I'm, I'm here to set them free. I'm going to recover sight to the blind, not only the physically blind, but the spiritually blind. I'm going to allow them to see. Those who are oppressed will find liberty. I'm here to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. What a way to begin a ministry. And from that moment on, Jesus began to do each thing that he said he would. The Bible tells us in the Gospels, these four Gospel accounts, that because Jesus was baptized and empowered by the Holy Spirit, he went about and healed the sick. He cleansed the lepers. That was an incurable disease, a wasting disease. Your extremities would just begin to dissolve over time. You were unclean, and Jesus cleansed the lepers. 
He restored sight to the blind, caused the paralyzed to walk, the deaf to hear. He delivered those who were tormented by demons. He multiplied just a few loaves and fish and fed thousands. And if that wasn't enough, he walked on water and raised the dead. How could he do all of those things? It was because the Holy Spirit had anointed him to preach, to teach, to heal, to deliver. Now, we read the Gospels and we think, well, of course, he was God. We would expect nothing less from the Son of God that he should be doing those things. But it's quite another thing for us to think that we could be used by God to do the very same. It's hard for us to think that the words Jesus spoke are actually true. When he said, greater things than these you will do because I go to the Father. Greater things? Yep. So all we have to do is turn the page to the book of Acts. And we see that the early disciples did exactly that. They continued to do the things that Jesus did. In John chapter 20, verse 20 through 21, Jesus actually conferred this assignment on his disciples. He said, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Amazing. I didn't say this in the other services, but do you know this is the second time God breathed on people? The first time was when God breathed the breath of life into Adam and he became a living being. Breath and spirit are the same word in Hebrew and Greek. Jesus breathed on them, received the Holy Spirit. Ten days later, that's exactly what happened. The day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell not only on the 11 that were in the upper room, but there were 120 up there, men and women. The Holy Spirit fell on them. They began to speak in other tongues, started a revival. The Peter who denied Jesus 50 days earlier now is standing in front of a crowd of thousands preaching the gospel, and that day 3,000 souls were saved, baptized in water, and presumably they too received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, that was pretty impressive. And we might think, well, was there anything else? Uh, what else did they do? Do you know, just a few days later, there was a, there was a really unique thing that happened. It's, it was called the hour of prayer. There were three times Jews would go into the temple and pray, nine in the morning, noon, and three in the afternoon. And these were called the hours of prayer, and they had a morning sacrifice, an evening sacrifice. In Acts chapter 3, it says that Peter and John went through what was called the beautiful gate. It was a very impressive entrance into the temple area. And they were walking into this, uh, through this beautiful gate, as they had done hundreds of times before. And the Bible tells us in Acts 3 that there was a man who was laid every day at the entrance of that gate to beg for alms. That's how he made a living, as a beggar. It says he was lame from his mother's womb, never walked. And what's interesting is Jesus had passed by this same man countless times, but never healed him. The disciples had walked by this man many times, never healed him. He continued to sit there every day. And so I'd like you to imagine, here's Peter and John just going about their business. They're heading into the temple. They get to this beautiful gate, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit stops them right there on the spot. And they realize, oh, God's up to something. And this man extends his hands begging for alms as he always did with any passerby. And Peter and John looked at him and Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have. But what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man sat there and didn't move. I want you to notice what happens next. 
And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. Now listen, if you go praying for lame people on the sidewalk and they don't move, make sure it's God before you start yanking them to the feet. Yeah? And so he pulls him to the feet and immediately his feet and ankle bones receive strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. You know there's two miracles here? The first one is that his physical problem with feet and ankles was corrected. But let me ask you, what do you suppose the condition of that man's legs were? Lame from birth, never walked in his life. And yet, instantaneously, not only are his feet and ankles healed, but somehow he learned to walk. Not, not just walk, he's jumping up in the air, walking, leaping, praising God. I think that's a miracle too. That's impressive. Doesn't stop there. A few days later, not too long after that, as the church began to grow, people became in need. Uh, you know, if you became a follower of Jesus in those days, nobody would have anything to do with you if you were a Jew. A lot of people didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah after all. And so if you believed on him, sometimes people would just not sell you anything. You couldn't buy from them. You were kicked out of the synagogue. A lot of widows in that day. And they had nothing to provide for themselves. So the church began to collect whatever resources they had, pool their resources so everybody could eat. Well, there's a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. What they decided is we'll sell some property and give the proceeds to the church to help out the poor. Only thing is, is they pretended to give the full amount and only gave a portion. So they walk in and lay the money at the apostles' feet, Ananias did, and he said, here's the proceeds from the sale of our property. And Peter looked at him and said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart that you should lie to the Holy Spirit? You've not lied to men, but to God. And as soon as he said those words, Ananias fell over dead. A few hours later, his wife shows up. Peter said, Sapphira, did you sell the land for thus and so and the amount of money they gave? And she said, yes. She fell over dead. You see, Peter had a word of knowledge. God revealed to him something that only God knew. And Peter confronted them with their deception. Well, I'll tell you what. If something like that you'd pro happened, you'd probably want to be careful about going to church after that. I mean, seriously. This guy can read your, your mail. I mean, he knows what's going on. And so great fear came upon the congregation. But many people believe because they saw the power of God demonstrated in their midst. Didn't stop there. We might think, well, it was just the apostles that did all these real supernatural things. Not so. They had an actual bunch of guys that they gathered together to help feed the poor. They realized we need a hospitality tent and we need people to serve pancakes. So they went and recruited a guy by the name of Stephen. I want you to look at his qualifications. It says that Stephen was a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. That's what it took to serve groceries to the poor widows. You got to be full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. So he would be there distributing food as the people went through the line in the morning. In the afternoon, he was in the streets of Jerusalem witnessing. Listen to what it says. In Acts 6, 8 through 10, 8 and 10, it says, He was full of faith and power and did great wonders and miracles among the people. And people were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And he was just a server of tables. He was a waiter. Just an average guy. But God's spirit was working through him mightily. Both in word and deed. Acts chapter 9, Peter prayed for a woman who had died and she was restored to life. Acts 14, the apostle Paul saw a lame man in the crown and he said, stand up and walk. The man jumped to his feet. Acts 19, <laughs> Paul was in Ephesus. He'd raised up a bunch of disciples, trained them up, sent them out into Asia Minor to preach the gospel. He said, fellas, before you go, let me pray over some handkerchiefs. You take these with you wherever you go. If you find a sick person or someone demonized, just lay it on them. They'll be healed and delivered. It's exactly what happened. All of Asia heard the word. 
They just simply laid the handkerchiefs on them and people were healed. They were delivered. These are just a few examples, just a few examples of what God did through ordinary people. People just like us. I know you read stories like this and we tend to think that God only uses really spiritual people to do things like this. But the truth is God desires to glorify the name of Jesus Christ and use every one of us to preach, teach, and heal in the same way that Jesus and the early disciples did. Do you believe it now? You were very bold and confident in the beginning. But are we really willing to reach out our hand when God impresses us to do that or to speak a word or to prophesy? I think the, really the only question we need to answer is this. Are we willing and available for God to express his grace, love, and power through us? Are we willing? Are we available? Or have we drawn a line in the sand and say, uh, we'll leave that to the missionaries. We'll leave that to the professionals. Let me break this to you gently. There is no spiritual hierarchy in the kingdom of God. Revelation chapter 1 tells us that all of us in this room, God calls you a king and a priest. A king has authority and power. A priest mediates a relationship. The priest mediates a relationship between God and people. See, he represents God to people and he represents people to God. That's what a priest does. That's what you do. You pray for a lost loved one, you're serving as a priest. You live your Christian life, you're serving as a priest. You pray for the heal you're healing the sick, you're functioning as a king. And God has given you that power by his Holy Spirit. There are nine spiritual gifts that are described in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to talk about them very quickly. This uh, actually uh, would encompass a nine-month series. I've already done that. It's on the tapes if you want to get more information. I've gone through all of this in terms of spiritual gifts and how they're used more in depth. But let's just get an acquaintance with these gifts of power that are available to us through the Holy Spirit. Writing to this fledgling congregation that was full of the gifts of the Spirit, the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 11, he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are diversities of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. These nine spiritual gifts can be divided into three main categories. If you look at all of them, you'll notice that they can be categorized, if you will. There are, first of all, speaking gifts. And Paul mentions that one of those is a gift called speaking in tongues. It is a gift in which we speak in a language by the Holy Spirit that we have never learned. It can be a human language, an earthly language, which is what happened on the day of Pentecost. There were 13 different languages spoken by Galileans who knew none of these languages, but they spoke freely, praising God in this unknown tongue. Foreigners heard them speak and understood what they were saying, but the disciples didn't know what they were saying at all. It can also be a heavenly language. 1 Corinthians 13, it says, Though I speak with the tongues of what? Men and of angels. See, there's a heavenly language. It's a language we can use in our prayer life. Speaking to God in an unknown tongue that he clearly understands. And the Bible says that when we do that, it's the Spirit who is praying through us. It's praying according to the will of God. There's the interpretation of tongues. 
that's the ability of another person in a public setting who hears a message in tongues over here and over here they say I know exactly what they said and they translate so everyone can benefit from what was said it's a gift and when that gift is used in a public setting it becomes a kind of prophecy which is the third gift that we see in this category. It's the ability to, to actually speak not only of the future things, but it really has the idea of forth-telling, telling something from God to a congregation or to individuals. 1 Corinthians 14 tells us that the gift of prophecy is for encouragement, exhortation, and comfort. It's a gift that helps people understand what God is up to, delivering a message from God to people that he wants them to hear. We see the Bible is full of prophets and their prophecies, and they take many different forms. Then there are the knowing gifts. The knowing gifts have to do with understanding something that couldn't be known by natural means. And the first is a word of knowledge. This is the ability to know something that you couldn't naturally know, like Peter discerning and knowing that Ananias was lying. The word of knowledge is the correct application, or the word of wisdom, rather, is, is the correct application of knowledge. Wisdom. The ability to know what to do in, this, in a particular situation and how to do it. There are a lot of people in the world who are very smart, but they're not always very wise. Wisdom is a function of experience and knowledge, but it's also a gift. Solomon had that gift. God gave him the gift of wisdom to know how to lead people well. And so it's just the ability to discern the will of God and how to accomplish his will and purposes in any given situation. And then, thirdly, is the discerning of spirits. I've known people who have this gift and they're actually able at times to see in the spiritual world. And they're able to see the activity of demons and how they are tormenting and are afflicting people and to pray accordingly. It's interesting, as Jesus went about his ministry, he actually identified spirits by name. For example, he saw a woman who was bowed over. She had a physical infirmity. But as Jesus spoke and delivered her from that sickness or that infirmity, he explained to the disciples, that woman has a spirit of infirmity. And after he rebuked that, then he laid hands and healed her. There were two things that happened, two, two gifts at one time. Peter's mother-in-law was sick of a fever, and Jesus rebuked the fever. Apparently, there was some spiritual connection to it. Discerning of spirits. Jesus also walked around, and he saw people who were demonized, and he says, oh, that's a deaf and dumb spirit. And then he said, that spirit only comes out by prayer and fasting. So he understood, he discerned and recognized the spiritual activity and what to do about it. And then the third gift area, gift area is the working gifts, the gift of faith. Now I know we all have faith, but the gift of faith is one that is above and beyond the norm. For example, the gift of faith is used many times in the Old Testament by people who were going into battle. And so God would basically say, you have 10 people, they have 1,000 people, and the battle is already won, and you've won and defeated this army that's way beyond your ability to do that in the natural. A gift of faith is the ability to believe God for a miracle in spite of overwhelming obstacles. And when you have that gift... The outcome is never in doubt. You simply know that it's done even before it happens and you see its fulfillment. It's just, you just know it's done. In spite of impossible obstacles that stand in the way. Third, or secondly, there's the gift of, gifts of healing. You notice it's in the plural. Gifts, plural. The reason for that is that you are triune. You're, you, you have three parts to you. You have a body, a soul, and a spirit. And we can have trouble in one or more of those areas. So when people had a physical problem, Jesus would lay hands on them and heal their physical body. Sometimes people were just overcome with guilt 
because of their sins. They were in bondage and captivity and brokenhearted. And Jesus would set those captives free. That was a gift of healing too. We call that counseling today. But praying in such a way that people are delivered from hurts clear back into childhood that just still plague them even today. You can have a spiritual source of problems. Sometimes, as we see in the New Testament, people had a physical problem, but the root of it was something spiritual. The man who was by the pool of Bethesda, he was paralyzed, couldn't get into the waters. And Jesus asked him, do you want to be made well? And eventually he said yes, and so Jesus healed him. And then he said this, go and sin no more. In that particular case, apparently his physical condition was a result or a consequence of his sinful behavior prior to the time. So we can't be really calling everything a spiritual problem. It could be physical, psychological, spiritual, or a combination thereof. Gifts of healing is the ability to know what the problem is and the power to resolve it. And then finally, the gift of miracles. I like this one the best. The reason I like it is because the gift of miracles violates laws of nature and physics. I just think that's cool when God does that. So if you can take five loaves and two fish and feed 5,000 people and then collect 12 baskets of fragments, I think that's pretty cool. When you can walk on water and defy the law of gravity, I like that one too. Philip got translated through the air 20 miles. God just beamed him over there. Job done. No sense hanging around out here in the Gaza area in the desert. You led the Ethiopian to salvation, baptized him. The guy looked up and he, he was gone. <laughs> okay. I just like that one. You see, we're so stuck in our science. And we think, ah, God can't, you know, there's laws, there's rules. God says, I, can, I made the rules and I can break those rules anytime I choose. I remember back in the charismatic renewal of the 60s when the baptism with the Holy Spirit was really big back in those days and we were all excited. God was moving and the gifts of power were happening and boy, we wanted them all. We were just saying, God, I want all nine of them. Unfortunately, we're a little immature back in those days because we kind of had the idea that the more gifts, the more merit badges we had. You know what I mean? It's like, I'm really spiritual because I got two. How many of you got? Uh, I'm up to three now. Sheesh. Well, that wasn't such a good attitude that we had back in the day. But on the flip side, there are folks who say, you know... These spiritual gifts and all that, I, I'm not too sure. I'll tell you what, I'll just, God knows where I am and if he wants to use me, he knows where to find me. It's like, I don't really want to go there, but reluctantly, if he wants to give me one of those, then I might raise my hand halfway. You see, now, the Bible tells us that these gifts are available but he doesn't force them on anyone who doesn't want them. In fact, we're encouraged and invited to seek God for these gifts. So it isn't to suggest that we have no part to play when it comes to being used by God in these supernatural spiritual gifts. The Apostle Paul wrote, covet earnestly the best gifts. Covet to prophesy, forbid not to speak with tongues. I'm using the old King James Version here. Because this is the only, these are the only two occasions in the Bible where the word covet is used in a positive sense. Every other time you see the word covet, it's used as a kind of sin. But here, God says, I want you to zealously and earnestly desire the best gifts. Ask me for them. The word in Greek is zelutes. It means to be zealous for. So, are you willing? Are you available? Are you willing to be obedient if the Holy Spirit should call upon you 
to go over to someone and lay your hands on them and pray them to be healed or deliver someone from possession of a demon. Gets a little bit more personal, right, when we put it in that context. But please remember this. We can't be effective witnesses for Jesus Christ without his spiritual power, and this power is only available through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We can't accomplish spiritual things with natural strength. Jesus demonstrated that for us. Even he need to be endued with that power of the resident Holy Spirit before he could do those miracles. And I think he did that to set an example for us. So, the question this weekend is, how deep are you willing to go in your relationship with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit? How deep are you willing to go? I'm going to leave you with a visual picture of what I'm describing, and I'm going to ask you to look with me at Ezekiel 47, verses 1 through 9. Let me set the stage as to what's happening here. Ezekiel is a prophet, and in his, the book named after him, God is giving him a vision. It's a vision of the temple in Jerusalem that'll be in the future. It's a magnificent temple. And an angel in this vision is taking Ezekiel over to the door into the temple. And when they get to the door, Ezekiel is watching, and he's looking under the door, and you know, between the door and the floor, he says there's a trickle of water that was coming from the throne room of God. Just a little trickle of water. And so, in this passage, the angel brought Ezekiel back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the front of the temple faced east, the water was flowing from under the right side of the temple south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gateway that faces east, and there was water running out on the right side. And when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, a measuring line, he measured 1,000 cubits. If you want to make a note, that equals 500 yards. 500 yards. And he brought me through the waters. The water came up to my ankles. Again, he measured 1,000 cubits and brought me through the waters. The water came up to my knees. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through. The water came up to my waist. Again, he measured 1,000, and it was a river that I could not cross, for the water was too deep, water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. When I returned there along the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and the other. Then he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley and enters the sea. That would be the Dead Sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. And it shall be that every living thing that moves wherever the rivers go will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish because these waters go there for they will be healed and everything will live wherever the river goes. What is this about? What is this river? Flowing from the throne. Out through under the threshold. And I, I, was, I was meditating on this between services last. Between last service and this one. And the Lord just gave me a new insight to this. You know. This picture doesn't really surprise us too much in the natural because normally when rivers start out small, they get wider, true. But that's because other streams are feeding it and the further you go, the bigger it gets. But this stream has only one source. It only has one source, the throne room of God, but the further out it goes, it gets bigger and deeper, wider and deeper. There is no other source. I'll let you meditate on that one. In this image, I see five depths in our relationship with God. Five kind of experiences in the Spirit that we can have in our relationship with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. The first I'm calling life on the banks of the river. 
I think this is where we begin in our Christian life. We're born again. We become a, a believer. And we've seen the temple. We've had an experience with God. Our sins are forgiven. We know heaven is our home. We're excited. And we're standing by the river on the banks. Those who stand on the banks of the river observe those who have stepped in and are enjoying a measure of the spirit-filled life. They see others that have been around a while longer. And they realize there's something different about these Christians that have been saved for 30 or 40 years. They wish they could step in as well and share in the spiritual experience others are having, but they don't. They're afraid. They're afraid of what may need to change in their lives for them to enter this river of God, this spirit-filled life. They're afraid of the things God might ask them to do, or they may be afraid of losing control as they enter unfamiliar territory spiritually. So they're somewhat content to enjoy the testimonies of others and live vicariously through their experiences, all the while keeping a safe distance with their feet on solid ground. But then if you walk another 500 yards and you're letting God lead you a little bit further downstream, you enter the ankle-deep life. Now, if you're in the water ankle-deep, how is that different from life on the banks? Well, you feel the coolness of the water. You're starting to feel that current. It's refreshing. It's a new experience. But you can, maintain, you can maintain your balance pretty easily when it's just ankle deep. In this level, you're aware of the Holy Spirit's presence and activity in your life. And you're willing to participate in his work. But, you know, we're still in control. The current isn't so strong that we lose our footing. And we determine how much influence we're willing to let the Holy Spirit have in our lives. But we have stepped out and left the security and routine of life on the banks of the river. And we've entered into a new way of thinking and living. I think this is when the Holy Spirit begins to move on a person's life and says, you need to get baptized in water. You need to learn how to give. Okay, that's a, that's a step. That's a step. Ah, but if you go another little distance, you're knee deep. You're up to your knees now. And if you've ever waded across a river, do you know that the deeper you go... Uh, the less sure your own footing is, the more you feel that river water flowing by. And I think we come to this point of a little, a little discontent. We want more. We realize there's got to be more. And so we're not content with a shallow life in the spirit. So we take a few more tentative steps forward. The current is stronger now. We're able to feel its effects, not just on our feet, but now it pushes on our legs and moves us a little side to side. We are becoming more familiar with the Holy Spirit's presence and how he moves and influences us in our daily lives. But if we walk a little further, oh no, we're now waist deep. Anybody here ever wade across a river? You ever? A few of you, okay. What happens when you're waist deep? You realize, you feel like you could fall into this thing anytime, right? I mean, you're more buoyant. It's at this point, I believe, that we're really faced with an important decision. Are we going to stay in this depth where we are still in control, sort of? Are we going to go deeper in the flow of the Holy Spirit, reaching this waist-deep level in God's river? At this point, the river will be more in control than we are. Our once secure footing will be tentative at best as we are increasingly buoyant. And we feel as if we could easily be swept downstream at any moment. At this stage, we've learned that fear and control are the core issues we must overcome if we are to take another step. Will we really trust God? Will we trust him with our lives and with the direction the current will take us? Are we really willing to surrender ourselves, our dreams, our possessions, our schedules to God and abandon ourselves to his will and his work? <laughs> I remember we were on fire with God in the 70s and we said, God... I'm ready to go and do whatever you want me to do. Please, though, don't send me to Africa. I'll go to anywhere but Africa. They got snakes and things that'll eat you and malaria. And Send me someplace warm, but not too hot. You see, what happens is we start drawing lines. We say, well, I'll go so far, but I'm not too sure. Don't send me someplace. You see, we're afraid of what God might ask of us. 
Can I tell you that God's always a good God and whatever he does is for your absolute best? Absolutely every time. I didn't say it was easy, but I said it will be best. At this point, you realize that you've gone too far to turn back. When you're waist deep, you realize, I've gone too far. I know too much. And we've experienced too much. There was this moment when Jesus in John 6 was teaching the crowds and he said something really hard for them to understand. And so a lot of them abandoned him at that point and says, we're out of here. Jesus turned to his other disciples and said, are you going to leave too? And Peter said this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You see, at that point, you realize there's no other place. There's no other option. You're committed. You've gone too far. You know too much. And you can't go back to live the way you used to. You've spent a little too much time in the river. So all you can do now is take the final step. You might as well get, you know, you're that, you're half wet. Why don't you just jump in? Enter the river and this water that is too deep, water in, one, in which one must swim. Notice this, a river that cannot be crossed. You know what that says to me? No one in their lifetime will ever experience all the potential that is available in God. You'll never experience it all. There's so much more you can't even begin to swim the cross. You can't even see the other side. That's living in the flow of God's spirit. Living in the flow of the Spirit of God is a place of complete surrender. It's a place where you abandon, you're abandoned to the will and purpose of God. And in a strange way, it's a place of rest. It's kind of like floating down the river on an inner tube. Isn't that relaxing? All you do is, I'll use the modern expression, you just go with the flow. And you know what's important is you can go with the flow because you know who's in charge of the current in the river. You just got to stay in it. Jesus said, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. I wonder how come we're heavy and burdened and heavy laden. It's because we're trying to do spiritual things and natural strength. That'll make you tired every time. But in me, Jesus says, you'll find rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Hebrews 4.9 says, therefore, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself ceased from his works as God did from his. In the flow of God's river and a spirit-empowered life, we are taking places we never imagined. And God is able to accomplish things through us we never thought were possible. As the Apostle Paul wrote, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor. How hard is he working? How is Paul working? He says, I'm striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. So how deep are you willing to go? I need you to hear one thing clearly. So full attention right now. There is no condemnation for being at any one of those five stages in the river life. There is only invitation. You see, standing on the banks of the river, that's where you would expect to be when you become a Christian. You walk with the Lord a few years, you want to experience more. That's natural. 20 or 30 years later, hopefully you're knee deep or waist deep. And then there are those who just say, I'm all in. So there's no condemnation for wherever you happen to be. All that I'm saying is there's more depth in God. And God is inviting us to go deeper, to get into that river. Psalm 46, 4 says, There is a river whose stream shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. Psalm 65, 9, the river of God is full of water. It's a river that gives life wherever it goes. And so in closing, since I, I believe we're living in the last of our last days, we can no longer afford to live naturally. 
That is, we must not live by our natural abilities, instincts, logic, emotions, or the counsel of others alone. We must learn to live in the Spirit because Spirit-filled living is God's intention for all of us. So, to end the message, it's real simple. All I'm going to pray is that in every heart here this morning, all that God would hear us say is yes. Yes to salvation. Yes to baptism in water. Yes to the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Yes to the gifts of the Spirit. Yes, God, whatever your will is. Yes. And God will take your yes and say, let's measure a thousand cubits. Let's, trust, let's test the next depth. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that in our relationship with you, there's always more. That God, every person in this room represents a temple that you desire to fill, to glorify your name through. God, I pray that we would let you in. I pray, Jesus, that we would be willing to go deeper with you, that we would say yes to the gifts of the Spirit, that we wouldn't be afraid because you only give good gifts. Every good thing comes from you. So, Lord, I pray that as we prepare to go our way this week, we wouldn't be going in our own ability, our own strength, but, Lord, we'd be going in the power and anointing of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope.